Hey, Vanessa. And uh, hey, everybody who's listening to Uncertain Things. Oh, yes. Uncertain Things. This may be the first episode where we actually mention the name of this podcast. So pro. Well, today we have Adam Neely, a phenomenal musician, jazz bass player, music educator, and a fantastic YouTuber. He is our break, a little little coffee break from politics, which we Mm -hmm. thought was overdue yeah i definitely needed i needed a break from all the political content for sure so instead of debating the the georgia runoff or the (laughs) recount we are going to talk about music as language which is going to open up a lot of personal gripes that i have with different schools of linguistics and cognitive science with uh, especially with he who must not be named but who will be named within the podcast don't lie, you love him. You love, ch- you love ch- your little ch- your little Chomsky boy. <laughs> I do not see I, I love I love arguing with him in my mind. Which in a Dom world is something that you love. I guess so. So. <laughs> so we'll be opening this up with Adam. We'll also talk about copyright in music and the way that yes. corporations and big music conglomerates prey upon artists in the guise of protecting intellectual property. This is something that raises a lot of hateful feelings in me and about which Adam has plenty to say. Mm-hmm. We also get some fun little tidbits about Katy Perry and Beyonce along the way. So that's fun. True. And we also Spoiler talk. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> we also get to talk about race because Adam just released a very interesting opinion piece on his yeah. channel about the relationship between western music theory and and race and racism and white supremacy it's a video that he got a lot of flack for so we're gonna unpack the whole controversy and also make sure that you wear headphones when you listen to this because adam uh gives us a bunch of musical examples and explanations which will probably sound better with your headset thank you adam for not only talking with us, but literally playing along. Yes. So before we start, <laughs> let me just nudge our listeners again to, if you haven't already, follow us on Uncertain Pod on all the socials. Make sure you subscribe to us on where, wherever you get your podcast and on uncertain.substack.com. And if you feel so inclined, so kindly, so generous in your heart, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Music because... That is the lifeblood of podcasting, and we we could use some of that lifeblood, some of that precious lifeblood. Also, I'd nice. love to know if people like this, because it's a little bit of a departure for us, but we're kind of, we're down for it. We're down to go into the world of music, of, of art, of maybe science, and kind of broaden out. We've just been in a little bit of a politi- eye of the political storm for a while, as, as as the nation. But if people are into this like branching out tell us it was originally our intention to discuss culture and the human condition in this broader way just the reality of the november elections kind of kind of tunneled us into the the political but we're definitely into finding more of these conversations 
and yes, and generally, send, send, please send us messages. Yeah. Let us know what you We're think, friendly. and oh. we will we will heartily argue with you about <laughs> it. Adam will he loves that. <laughs> I'll just I'll just send you a smiley face emoji. <laughs> I'll be on my way. And with that, to Adam Neely. <laughs> well, you're not even your face isn't even there at all, Adam. I don't know if that's intentional, but yes, you're just it's... a little cartoon just, with a scarf. I'm, I'm, I'm just hiding all the alcohol that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> Adam, <laughs> thank, you. thank you for joining us. Nice. How's it going, guys? <laughs> Pretty good. 1 p.m. on a Wednesday. Dom's already drinking. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, I, I, I was shocked that you don't have alcohol in your box. Though. Oh, it's, you know, I have an empty beer can right here. There you go. Right off screen. No, I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us. Mm-hmm. Of it's course. such a, a, a nice uh, change of pace for us because we've been in this kind of political maelstrom for the past few weeks. So it's kind of nice to talk to someone who isn't necessarily going to talk only about politics, which is I great. can. I can, <laughs> but I'm not going to because I'm... <laughs> that's not you, my you thing. You have a brand to preserve. I have a brand to preserve, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so p- part of the reason that we started this podcast was actually to to force ourselves to think outside of the things that drive us crazy. And okay. actually try to calm things down. And then we were less and less able to do this in the past couple of weeks. So now we're lucky to be able to talk to you and think about the healthy things in life. Yeah. So, our, our tagline is everything is broken. Now what? And the idea was like, we'll talk about the things that are wrong with the world, but then we'll also talk about the things that could be better. And we definitely got stuck in the first half. Yeah. Um, so, so, may- so Adam, uh, can you give us uh, your, your elevator bio? All right, yeah. So I am Adam Neely. I am a bass player and electronic music composer and a music YouTuber. And on my music YouTube channel, I talk a lot about music theory, uh, music history, and how uh, we can relate better to music from the perspective of somebody who's doing this professionally and from the perspective of somebody who has kind of a technical language of making music. And what I try and do is at least try and, I guess, demystify some of the technical elements of music so that people know that there is, a, you know, people think very deeply about music when they're creating it. It's not this like mystical, magical thing that just comes out of people's, you know, creative minds. Uh, there's a lot of thought and a lot of care put into every note and every sound that happens. And uh, on my U- music YouTube channel, I talk about things like polyrhythms and uh, combination tones and all of these like music esoterica subjects to get people as excited about music as I am. And uh, hopefully people uh, walk away from my videos at least um, pumped about this thing, this universal human experience that is music. I want to ask you about how you transitioned further into the realm of being an educator. But before that, I just want to delay for a second on on something that you said, Mm -hmm. that music is not something that just, you know, pops out of people's fingertips. Hmm. And I wonder if that's something that you you had to like struggle with the this the idea of the the musical genius or the music is just an sheer inspiration. Is that something that you encounter and trying to diffuse as a myth? Uh, yeah, pretty frequently. Um, I myself never really had that because I kind of grew up in a musical family. Uh, my mom is a music uh, a musician and a voice teacher, and her brothers are all musicians, and so. Uh, we always kind of grew up knowing that like, okay, well, we need to think about scales and we need to think about rhythm and internalizing rhythm and we need to think about all these things because this is our craft. This is how we get better. And it wasn't until a little bit later uh, where I started really seeing this of, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, the idea of the blues musician who just feels it. 
And there is definitely a degree of that um, with great musicians. They are definitely working on a higher intuitive level, but they practiced and they really thought very carefully about every single detail of their craft as they were working on it. And so when I was making my YouTube channel, when I was getting very deep in the weeds and things about, you know, music theory stuff, I definitely started seeing comments about uh, people saying, oh, you're overcomplicating it. You're overthinking it. And I thought that was rather strange because, you know, from the perspective of a musician, I was like, well, how the hell else are you supposed to teach people and communicate information, communicate uh, this, this language, this, uh, this craft that we have? And that was an interesting experience for sure to see this kind of mystical uh, thing around music still very much alive in the world. And I, I kind of want to do my bit, in, uh, I guess, to dispel that. It's interesting, too, that, I mean, like you said, you do kind of focus on esoterica, on the kind of more like wonky in the weeds stuff of music. And of yet course. your audience, it expands beyond non-musicians. I wonder if you have a theory as to what, what it is about this kind of like the nitty gritty of music that is appealing to people. Do you think it's related to that, like demystification? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot about science communication, um, like Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Michio Kaku. And, you know, there's this thing in the general public, uh, everybody kind of vaguely knows what quantum theory is or string theory. Nobody knows any of the real details. That's for people who are really deep in that field with PhDs. But everybody has kind of a general idea of like what quantum theory is. It's like spread out through science fiction. Um, and it's, I feel like it's kind of the same thing with some of the subjects that I talk about, um, some of this esoterica. Um, and the reason why is people are just interested. They're hungry for, you know, some kind of uh, in, I guess, on some um, of the more weird music theory things. Um, I, I just kind of see that relationship between quantum theory and polyrhythms, you know, uh, both things that require a lot of technical knowledge to be able to fully grasp, but at the same time, stuff that people are interested in. Is part of it the, the being able to read the music more richly or pay attention to more of the esoterica that you're introducing people into is that also you think translating into the way that they're able to listen to it for fun or or do you think those are two separate <laughs> magisteria well, sometimes you <laughs> listen to it just kind of to study it and to see wow that's really interesting now i'm gonna listen to Katy perry for 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 my personal joy <laughs> well okay i mean there's different ways of listening and that is something that i feel like people are getting from my videos and I, it's something that i really try and uh communicate with my education and something that I try for myself too, listening to music on multiple levels. There, you can listen to music with your body and being aware of how the music makes your body move. That's a very valuable and very important way of listening to music and understanding music. There's also listening to music for its harmonic motion, listening to the different chord progressions. And hopefully if somebody watches one of my videos where I'm talking about different chord progressions in different songs, they start listening and trying to get their ears around what's happening in the synths parts versus just what's happening in the melody. And then you can listen to music for the lyrics and listening for the story being told through um, the vocalist and through the singer. And that's a way that a lot of people relate to music because that's a, a very, I guess, straightforward way of understanding music because you can relate to the storytelling and the lyrics. But there are different kinds of storytelling that go on in music very frequently. Um, and that's, you know, there are multiple layers here. There are multiple ways of relating to music. And I think that one of the things that I want to do is tr to try and get people listening deeper and listening wider and getting music into your ears and your body 
um, both as a listener and a performer. So I'd kind of like to hear a personal example of how you're going through those or have developed those different types of listening to music and how you are able to listen to things that, you know, an average listener would be completely perplexed by wow, what the hell like the sort of music <laughs> that gets people thinking, what, what the hell am I supposed to make of this? Okay. So uh, to, to give a little bit of context, um, my mom was a, cl a contemporary classical soprano in the 80s, 1980s, and she worked with um, some contemporary classical composers like John Cage. And um, so I always experienced some very strange atonal music in the house growing up alongside the Beatles, which my dad made sure that I got that side of my music education. Um, so I, my relationship to music throughout my life has been very much, I want to say, I don't want to say eclectic, but I have different different modes of listening, different modes of relating to music. And I don't like the idea that the average person can't relate to music that's complicated and dissonant and weird. Because there is a way that people do that, and that's through film scores. Uh, people relate to very tense sounds and very weird dissonant sounds through film all the time because there's a story being told on screen. And, you know, something like um, George Crumb's Black Angels it's a really intense, dissonant piece of music that's written for electric, uh, electric string quartet, like a string quartet with all the instruments plugged in. And it's very like aggressive and it's not very pleasant to listen to, but it's telling a story and it's telling the story. It's basically a protest piece of music about the Vietnam War. And as soon as people have that relationship between the sounds that they're hearing and a story that's being told, there's a deeper connection to the sounds and a deeper emotional connection to the sounds. So there's always a way of getting people relating to any kind of sound, any kind of musical sound uh, that I, I feel like it, it, there, there always needs to be an in. There always needs to be an in on any kind of weird music, uh, quote unquote weird. And I think that in is just telling a story and people always were going to be able to listen to like, for example, the film scores of Bernard Herrmann are really intense, really dissonant, sometimes 12 tone, atonal uh, pieces of symphonic music, but they work brilliantly in the context of films. Um, and I think that's, that's the connection there. Everybody needs to have some kind of in. Yeah. In con I think you've, you bring this up in some of your videos too, that th this idea of context being incredibly important, like the oh, way yeah. that you're receiving music. And I, I've been thinking about this like in pandemic times where the ability to listen to music live in this kind of more communal way is, is so diminished. I'm wondering if you're thinking about like, what is, what, what is the role of music at this moment in, in history, which is very, very fraught and, and, and especially in the US, we feel like particularly divided amongst ourselves. Yeah, well, there's different ways of listening to music. There's recorded music, which hasn't changed at all in, you know, in uh, the time of coronavirus. Uh, and recorded music is how people think about music these days. And they are going to more and more. And live music becomes more and more of this niche thing. Like, oh, you're creating a recording live? How weird, how strange. Um, but so, I mean, there's always going to be avenues for musicians and uh, music lovers and uh, consumers of music to consume recorded music. But uh, live music is, it, it's, I don't want to be too, um, I don't know, like dark on this. That's the term that a lot of musicians use to get dark on something. But yeah, I don't want to get too dark on it. But live music is 
is dying very quickly. Um, and it just requires a different shift, a perspective shift on what music is for the musician and for the uh, music consumer. And it's recorded music, which is great. And there's so many different kinds of ways of relating to that, but it's just a very, it's a perspective shift. We're in a very different time now than we were uh, eight months ago. Do you think it can still connect us even when it's recorded? Uh, are you talking about like a live uh, event where people are like listening together or? <laughs> well, I guess like when I think about like the power of music and the way that it it can connect to people, I, I generally think of live because I'm thinking of that experience mm-hmm. in the crowd, the interaction, musician, uh, person, 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 participant. Um, and now, but now when I feel like with that diminishing so much, I, I wonder to what extent music still has the power to connect us. Hello, who needs music when you have political rallies for that now? <laughs> yeah, you can just go there. And people are playing music at political rallies, uh, yeah. both sides. Um, I will say that, at least here in New York, uh, the music scene has really stepped up during any kind of protest or any kind of celebration. It's pretty amazing, actually. Every time you see people out on the streets, there is a horn band, there is a brass mm. band going on. Uh, it's it's very fundamental to like the, uh, I feel like everybody being cooped up. Everybody needs to have that ecstatic experience of being in a crowd with loud music playing. And um, there, there's a very like there's a need there's a need for that and um anytime that we get the very briefest opportunity to go out and listen to music and take part in that communal experience where uh, i call it the ecstatic experience this quasi-religious experience where you're listening to uh, live music together and you feel this oneness with everybody uh, everybody goes out and goes crazy with it um i think it's very powerful um but i don't think that we have many opportunities now and any opportunity that we have, we take it. And it's very nice to see that. Professionally, how mm. much is that being felt? The fact that shows are just oh. gone. Oh my God. It's, it's bad. Um, all Broadway shows are canceled. Um, all tours are canceled. Everything is canceled. Um, I'm trying to book more live performances for next summer, but realistically that's probably not going to happen and what that means is that we have like a a lost lost years of um, income for professional musicians i see a lot of people uh, going to different careers which is very unfortunate i see a lot of people teaching um but yeah it's i don't want to again if the idea of like trying to find more paths forward is the point of this podcast um i don't want to be too dark on any of this stuff (laughs) Um, well, we've betrayed yeah. <laughs> our goals several times before. I'm, you specifically, you have created yourself, uh, I don't want to call it a niche, but because you, you have a huge audience, mm-hmm. but you've created an, an alternative to having to rely on the old models of, of, of music. So you, you're able to kind of synergize your musical work with your education work. And is that is that something that you did consciously to some extent, trying to hedge against just being fully dependent on the music market or something else? Yeah. Yeah. So to give a little bit of context on my YouTube channel, I started it in 2006. So I've been doing this for quite some time. Um, And I have been slowly building it for, I guess it's been 14 years now. And it was mainly just as a, a way of communicating with different people. I really liked to teach. I really liked to talk about different subjects. And it wasn't until about five or six years ago where uh, YouTube started to become professionalized. And you had beauty channels starting to do things uh, like 
professionally and like uh, as a day gig basically and you had gaming channels and other things and I thought like well okay uh, not a lot of music channels doing that quite yet what if I like really started going hard at this and I had just like lost a um, a Broadway gig. I was fired from it because a uh, long story, but I was basically hired to play an instrument that I didn't really play that well. And it was, uh, it was kind of a debacle. So I was feeling like really depressed. So fake like, it, did you make it did not work for you? Oh, no, it didn't. <laughs> there, there are definitely, there are definitely limits to fake it till you make it, especially on that high of a level. It's basically like the equivalent of going on live TV and, uh, like botching an American Idol audition, like really <laughs> badly. Uh, you can't fake that. So I tried to fake it and I, I didn't. Um, so I was, had a bit of time to kill and I was like, all right, well, how do I, how do I move forward? Well, I have this YouTube channel I've been growing. Uh, people are doing it professionally. Like maybe a few years down the line, I can do this like full time. And it kind of grew from there and I got very lucky being in the right place at the right time. Around 2016, um, YouTube's recommendation algorithm started heavily promoting music-related content for reasons I don't quite understand yet, but I'm very glad to have benefited from it. Um, there's very much a luck element. This was my big break, if we're going to use that analogy. Other YouTube channels like Andrew Huang also saw this around the same time. Um, and yeah, so I've been doing it. I was just kind of doing it because I had some time to kill and I got lucky because I got in very early. And throughout this entire time, I've been slowly honing my craft, figuring out what the YouTube recommendation algorithm likes, because that's something that we talk about a lot as YouTubers. We think about what the algorithm will promote to people. It's not just the content that we create. It's how it relates to that algorithm, uh, the titling, the thumbnails, all that stuff. And I, um, yeah. And then it wasn't until this year where I realized that, oh my gosh, this was such a lifesaver for myself and such a boon. And I, I want to try and figure out ways of uh, teaching uh, other musicians the skills that I've learned over the past 14 years on this platform. And it was, um, it was interesting because I do know of some musicians who immediately in March, um, like the, um, friends of mine who are like, all right, let's do YouTube. Uh, at least I can build something like Adam did. Um, and, you know, we got uh, my friend Elliot Klein, we got Rotem Sivan, who's this great uh, guitar player who just started doing it immediately and they've started growing. And like, I see um, more and more uh, YouTubers or like musicians making the switch because of that. But um, the thing that I always say to everybody is that YouTube and social media content creation is kind of like uh, your instrument. It's kind of like something that you have to shed, which is a term meaning to practice. It's something that you have to get good at. And you wouldn't go out on stage having practiced guitar for six months. No, you go on stage after many years of practice and then people might want to listen to you. It's the same thing with any kind of social media in this digital content um, realm that we're in. And so um, it, it's very disheartening for many musicians who have uh, dedicated their lives and their careers to getting good at their craft and having to kind of start over again with this new craft. Um, but that's kind of where I'm at. I got very lucky. <laughs> yeah, th there's also the the outlier element in it. It's, it's, a, it's a pet peeve of mine that I always repeat, but you know, the, the, the people quote the Malcolm Gladwell book Outliers because of the 10,000 hour shtick. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 but the, but, the, but the, the real, the, the actual core of the book was really not the 10,000 hours. It was about how lucky people mm -hmm. are to fit in the right window of opportunity to have been able to achieve either the 10,000 hours or whatever, but it's really about the window of opportunity. That's the interesting point that Malcolm makes in that book, and you really had that window of opportunity. 
Oh, you were there at the right time. A hundred percent. I got so lucky. Um, I don't want to like take away from all the work that I put in because I've, I've put in a lot of work. Right. Uh, but yeah, I got very lucky. And um, it's all in this relationship to machine learning. Weirdly, right. uh, machine learning graced its uh, like I, I have the blessing of machine learning. Um, <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's weird. Um, like when YouTubers get together, they talk about the algorithm as this inscrutable force, like it's a, an old god, like mm. it's the something that we pray to. We give give thanks <laughs> to the algorithm. What does the algorithm want this time? Because you can't know. That's the uh, that's the stressful thing, and your people are building businesses on this recommendation algorithm, and you don't know uh, when it's going to change. Exactly, um, and it's changed for the better, and it's changed for the worse for me. And it's you know, um, I guess it's a skill of knowing when to change and how to change. Um, I think one thing that's definitely taught me, this whole thing on YouTube has taught me, is uh, it's so important to be flexible and change at a moment's notice. And that's hard for many people. Um, but being flexible and changing at a moment's notice is kind of the name of the game because of how fast things constantly move. It makes me think about... Um the parallel shift with journalism is both Adam and I have journalism backgrounds. Oh, and yeah. I would say we have, as an, as an industry, have not been able to pivot and shift. And in the only ways that we have been able to pivot and shift are potentially <laughs> contributing to the demise of our democracy right now with everything becoming incredibly divisive, clickbaity. Um, and obviously that has a lot to do with, you know, what's going to drive clicks. But I think it's interesting for me to see the flip side with your videos, which aren't clickbaity per se like these this is like they are though okay I, all right yeah, well let's take yeah. us through <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i mean i the way i think about it is i want to create a video that i myself would click on and i am coming from a very specific background of a, a musician and i do have clickbaity titles but they're clickbaity in different ways and every niche has a different kind of clickbait every niche has a different kind of language and journalism is definitely a, a niche that has a language that's very specific to the clickbait but then music theory videos have another form of clickbait and then gaming videos have another form of clickbait it's, it's a language of getting people engaged um, so I do engage in, um, for example, there's something called anti-clickbait that I do that's meant to try and get you to click something. Um, there's a video that I have called, uh, what is the slowest music humanly possible? Question mark. And then in the thumbnail, it says it's about 33 beats per minute. <laughs> and so it, it answers, it, everything is answered for you. You don't need to go anywhere, but you want to know why is it 33 beats per minute? All right, I'm going to click this. Um, you know, there's different strategies in the music theory world, uh, the anti-clickbait world that you use. And it's this, it's this relationship to what you do and what you create that's so based on story. And as, as journalists, I know <laughs> this is your bread and butter. And it's something that I like, uh, I'm just starting to really realize about what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, it's 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 all clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> the how how much of your daily bandwidth do you feel is being spent thinking about how to placate this temperamental god? Oh, well, most of it. Um, temperamental god. Uh, I don't want to go down, <laughs> down this route too much, but yeah, most of it. I mean, I'm always thinking about titles and. Um, there's a friend of mine by the name of Steve Ontera who is samurai guitarist. He's a fantastic YouTuber. And he says that he never creates any anything without knowing what the title is and the thumbnail is ahead of time. So he creates every aspect of the promotional aspect of his piece of his like, you know, guitar YouTube video. And then he makes it. 
Um, so the story has to come pre-prepared before you write a single word down in the script before you shoot a single thing. Um, and I think about that a lot because that uh, really hones what it is you're going to create and how you're going to tell the story and what it is you want to communicate to people. Um, and it's something, you know, before that I was thinking like, all right, I'm going to do like a video about major seventh chords. Cool. Where's the story in major seventh chords? Okay, well then you start thinking about like, all right, this secret chord in this one song is the secret to its song, uh, like it's the song success. And then like, okay, well that's a very narrow, like that might be clickbait, but that isn't a very interesting story to me. Um, maybe I can think about like, all right, well this is the ancient Greek uh, tome which referenced major seventh chords. Okay, that's an interesting take, maybe, but I'm not sure if it's actually true. And, you know, I start thinking about all these things, because I do want to tell an interesting story that's true and nobody else has uh, told before. And it, it just gets in my head, and then it's just like weeks and weeks of that, of major seventh chords, and then I just can't <laughs> get a major, the sound of a major seventh chord out of my head, and then I start looking for it everywhere. It's like the number 23, uh, the Jim Carrey movie. <laughs> Is there a part of you that... I, no, not necessarily resents, but is frustrated with the amount of time that you have to be in this packaging game? Or is that just part, like, second nature to you now? Uh, it's frustrating, and uh, it is kind of second nature to me. Um, there's this amazing, amazing YouTuber, musician, guitarist by the name of Ben Levin, who makes incredible art. Uh, he does Blender animations, and he does... I, I don't even re really know how to describe his YouTube videos, but they're a, a weird combination of art and education and it's a psychedelic experience because and he's able to create this these incredible visuals that go with his music um but he then has to like clickbait this stuff and uh, it's stuff that would honestly you know in an ideal world um you know you just title it bacon or something and then it's just you know has no relationship whatsoever to the algorithm but he makes this crazy video about bacon um but there is no story being told so he has to think about titles that accurately reflect the art that he's creating as well as feed the algorithm and one of the best examples of this is he made a video called music theory to describe god's absence <laughs> and it's like whoa what the hell is this and it's just a very beautiful piece about like artistic piece about his relationship to music and his relationship to youtube and it's a very abstract and there's not a lot of education in it but it's something that like perfectly balanced the relationship of the art that he was trying to create and the clickbait that he was trying to create. Um, so there's this weird kind of uh, relationship that you always have to balance the two if you're going to try and get people to watch what it is that you do. And I thought that one video from Ben was like the perfect balance of, uh, of everything. <laughs> do, do you have a video that you've made that you feel like struck for you the right balance of a story and art? Uh, yeah, um, I, don't know, I, I don't do anything as uh, artistic as Ben, but, you know, things like um, the worst jazz solo of all time. Um, I made this little documentary about um, what it means to be bad and also about one-note solos and uh, the history of one-note solos. Uh, it wasn't really artistic, I guess, but um, I really like that clickbait. Uh, there's another one. Uh, the Girl from Ipanema is a far stranger song than you then you know, or I forget exactly what I titled it, but <laughs> it was just like this analysis of the girl from Ipanema, like the background elevator music that people associate. Um, but then I got into a lot of like the political history of the girl from Ipanema and also uh, the relationship of the girl from Ipanema and the blues and all these things that I was researching and this stuff that like means a lot to me. 
Um, so there's always there's always like a connection that you can make between the algorithm and the story, but um, it's it's a hard one. It's a hard one, as you guys probably know. <laughs> totally. Sorry, Adam, I cut you off before. Did you want to? No, just 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 musing that I assume that a lot, in fairness to history, a lot of European composers partook in the honorable clickbait tradition in how they they selected their pieces and what themes they decided to develop part of it was commission and part of it was appeasing an audience it's not like throughout history artists were just sitting in the solitude of their garrets thinking what idea should i develop now for my own artistic illumination well okay yeah i love that you brought that up because there's always a patron in in music and in any kind of artistic endeavor, there is always a patron, whether or not the patron is the mass market or literally a very wealthy aristocrat. There is always somebody who is putting money on the table saying, like, make something. Um, and you can you, you kind of just have to understand that about what it is that you do. And in the case of YouTube, the, my patron is the algorithm. Um, in the case of Mozart, it was uh, uh, I forget the it was Prince, the Prussian Prussian prince and Prussian emperor Wilhelm, I think. Uh, in the case of Bach, it was oh God, I forget all the names of these uh, patrons. But there's like there's always somebody with the coffer, the purse strings, and um, you know you you have to you have to feed yourself in one way or another, and what the money um, brings in will dictate what it is that you make. Bach like was uh, a working musician. He just wrote these uh, wrote every Sunday a new piece of music, not because it like uh, he was compelled to create art. No, you just needed something to do at church that Sunday. Um, it's the same thing with like YouTube. I need a video to do this Monday. So I'm going to create a video this Monday. Like I'm not going to put too much thought into it. It's going to be a video. Uh, if I put too much thought into it and if I like try and get artsy with it, I'm like, no, it's not going to be for this Monday. It's going to be for the next Monday. Oh, it's not ready yet. It's going to be for the next Monday. Then the algorithm will punish me because it expects me to release stuff regularly um, because it promotes channels that have regular engagement. So there's always a patron. There's always something that's uh, um, whether you know, uh, an artist always needs to appease, I guess. Um, anyway, yeah, that's that's something I think about a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's the Bob Dylan song. You got to serve somebody. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then you know, in the twentieth century, it's been the mass market. What is, what do what are people going to listen to? What are people going to buy? Um, it's there's always something. And now it's the mass market mediated by lines of code. Mm. Exactly, um, which is scary. <laughs> <laughs> so, putting tech dystopia aside to a lighter subject <laughs> of race. <laughs> oh yeah, let's talk about <laughs> white guy about talk to talk about race. All right, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> you just posted uh, recently two very thorough and thoughtful videos about the historic relationship and implications of race and European music? Yeah, so I made a video about music theory and white supremacy. Um, that, that's a somewhat controversial video. Uh, basically, um, you know, I, I say that I'm a music theory YouTuber. Um, I, I'm getting more and more uncomfortable with calling me, myself that because historically, at least in the United States, uh, the way that we understand music, that technical language that I was talking about at the beginning, um, comes a lot from uh, European ideas of what's valuable in music. And a lot of the in the United States, anyway, comes from a guy by the name of Henrik Schenker. And Schenker's views on music, he was a very racist, uh, misogynistic guy at the turn of the 20th century. But there are plenty of people like that, so we can't really 
hold it too much against Shanker for being that. But what we can say is that his uh, worldview on what was valuable in music um, does affect what we think about today. So the things that he found valuable were harmony and melody. And those are things which uh, he ascribed to genius in the works of like a bunch of these uh, German composers of the 19th century. And that idea of genius, the masterwork, has trickled down to basically everything in the, um, and how we relate to music in the 21st century. And, uh, you know, I think music can be so much more than harmony and melody. Uh, it can be timbre. It can be rhythm. It, there's all these um, very core values in music and uh, cultures around the world that are utterly neglected by the language of music theory that we have today. And I've been um, you know, the beneficiary of a lot of that kind of worldview. And so um, it's been used historically to prevent, uh, music theory specifically has been used historically to promote the idea that these white European musicians and this white European culture was superior to other styles of music and other cultures because it valued and was better at expressing harmony and melody, these things that Schenker espoused. And uh, there's kind of this renaissance going on right now, this reckoning in the field of music theory and musicology, um, all like led by um, this amazing professor by the name of Philip Ewell, who I interviewed for this video. Um, and then there's many others who have been doing this work for decades. Um, that Who's been trained on cl classical European music. Right, exactly. He's, uh, he's a professor of um, music theory at Hunter College. Um, so it's not like he's an outsider. He's definitely coming from the inside and he sees all of this. And he was basically somebody made a, made a very clear and sober and actually very like straightforward um, talk at the Society for Music Theory back in November of 2019 and then released this paper. And it kind of hit the world like a, a brick of dynamite, like it just exploded over everything because he was just kind of unturning things which had been left unsaid for many, many decades. Um, and so music theory and music is kind of having this reckoning alongside everybody else. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because I'm learning a lot throughout all of this. And I'm, uh, it was, it's a very controversial subject to, you know, say that I as a white person have benefited and like my status has benefited because of music theory and because of this history. Like music theory itself has this racial connotation. It is saying that harmony and melody are the things that are valuable in music, not other aspects. Dance isn't valuable. You don't go to music school and take a music theory class and learn anything about dance, whereas dance and certain like uh, West African styles is not even uh, essential. It's like fundamental, like music and dance go together. And so you're placing value judgments on what music actually is what music means by ignoring a fundamental aspect that, you know, could be um, essential to your understanding of music. To what extent is this racism and to what extent is that just a club trying to exclude outsiders? That's a good question. And, you know, I am not a race scholar by any chance, so I don't want to like say too much that I don't really understand. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, we have to understand that this country was founded with the idea that white people are the su superior and the idea that white people are uh, coming specifically from Europe and their culture is should be the baseline to which other cultures are compared. 
And I don't think that's particularly fair. I think that white European classical music or European classical music is amazing. It's a fantastic and incredibly expressive style of music. And we should definitely learn about it. And it, it means so much to so many people from so many different cultures. Uh, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart are fantastic musicians. And uh, I personally have gotten a lot from the music of Bach. But that doesn't mean that we need to compare Bach to the music of Fela Kuti or anybody else, really. Like, these are different styles. These are different modes of expressions from different cultures. And just because, you know, uh, James Brown doesn't use the uh, language of Bach or, I don't know, um, literally, like John Coltrane doesn't use the language of Bach in late John Coltrane, that doesn't mean that he isn't, uh, we can't understand the music. And music theory is organized in this technical language that certain styles of music benefit from this uh, higher... I guess, higher order or like a more complicated uh, developed language of music theory than others. You said that the video was controversial. Yes. <laughs> What kind of backlash did you receive? Well, and also like, were you afraid to do it in the first place? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And I, I don't want to like center myself on any of this stuff. I just was kind of I organized the video around uh, Philip Yule. He is the person I was borrowing very heavily from. I took most of the video and what I was saying from his paper and the interview. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of backlash. People don't like to hear hear that. People don't like to hear that, you know, there is this... <laughs> Uh, racial undertone to music theory. And, you know, I got many of YouTube, many YouTube videos popping up just like raging against me and making like very bad faith strawman arguments against me. And I, you know, I have to be very careful to uh, not say too much or not to say, I don't know, the wrong thing. Um, one thing that I will say is that I, I kind of don't want to center myself around this discussion because this isn't really my, this isn't my bag. <laughs> I was, I think I was honestly thinking of myself as like a, a journalist, somebody who's reporting on this and trying to use the language of YouTube to communicate some of these ideas. Um, but yeah, there's a huge backlash, like it's crazy. It's going, it's ongoing. Uh, I try not to, I try to ignore it. I don't read the comments. <laughs> I want to be clear that our interest in asking you this is not as somebody who's staking his own position, but exactly as a journalist who was covering a story and got a backlash for it. It's something that we can uh, very much relate to. And it's just highlighting that some, some difficulty in the environment. It's, it's, it was kind of an opinion piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, there's, it's, it's intertwined though. Cause like, uh, I am Adam Neely, uh, the business, the brand, the musician, the journalist, if we're going to call myself that, like I, there's so much involved in the name Adam Neely. Um, and that, that's kind of an odd position to navigate because it's, it's so personal. I can't like uh, hide behind anything. It, it's good. And I've, it used, I've leveraged that um, to communicate stories, but at the same time, it is like, it's a strange blend of everything. Um, so I take I take responsibility for it and I have to take responsibility for a lot of the stuff that I said and say, but, um, yeah. I mean, I will say I, I did, I did think it was really well done because I think you, you presented the, the argument that you will, uh, has put forth at the beginning, but you don't necessarily say like, this is where I stand until the end. So you kind of like walk us through why, how, how I, I kind of got the feeling that you're walking us through your process as you were learning more about it and kind of coming to with some sort of recognition as well. And so I, I quite appreciated the way that you structured 
the video to, to kind of Thank take you. take along the person with you and say like, this is why uh, I'm, I'm coming to this uh, acknowledgement or this recognition of, of where music theory is. Today. Not to mention that and, and not to just spend too much time complimenting you, but I think that the... <laughs> oh, please, please. <laughs> I really think that your your nuance in treating the subject was, yeah. was, was wonderful. And it is a subject that inevitably triggers fulminating responses. And you can say that 90% of responses to any hot button issue are unfair, but you really tread carefully. And you took 44 minutes to develop your argument with, with care and with understanding of, of why this is a complicated issue. It was not a hot take. Uh, I, yeah, I, I tried to. Although, okay, I will say this. I made a very critical mistake. And the critical mistake was the original title of the piece was called Music Theory is Racist because I knew it would drive clicks. Mm-hmm. And that, that, was, that was damaging because it, was, um, it, it diluted the message. It turned it in too sensational for something that was, I felt, very important and very nuanced. And I'm used to going sensational on videos, but I'm not used to dealing with subjects which require such delicate um, discussion. And so I, the original title was Music Theory is Racist, and then I changed it to Music Theory and White Supremacy, which I feel like uh, is a truer title, but less sensational. So I, I definitely made a huge mistake with that one. And I don't rec- like there is a, a limit to clickbait for, or sometimes if you're trying to honestly communicate something. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot specifically from Phil and other people. Um, and, you know, I tried to create a piece which was very heavily referenced. I referenced the hell out of that thing because mm. I didn't want to get anything wrong. Um, and I, I think I didn't get anything wrong, although there are some um, subjects like, okay, one interesting thing. This is, I, I want to I mention this because this is interesting. Um, I mentioned North Indian music theory and how mm-hmm. it's slightly different from Western music theory. Um, and like in, in many important ways, there are some similarities, but there's also some interesting differences in how they're thinking about scale and melody. And they aren't the same. They're just two different approaches, to the same kinds of sounds. So you can, at the superficial level here, two sounds which are kind of similar, but the two different cultures are thinking about them very differently. And then of course the bad faith argument and people were saying like, well, like, is it wrong for like uh, Western musicians to think about their music, um, like Western music and then North Indian music to think about North Indian music? Do you have to learn every style of music to not be racist? Was kind of the argument that I saw a lot in the comments. And, you know, I've, I've been to India a couple of times, or actually, sorry, I've only been to India once, but I have um, a good Indian friend uh, by the name of Shub Saran, who's a guitarist, we toured in, in March. And the thing that I notice in India is that Western theory is everywhere. Um, and the, the sort of Western hegemonic kind of monoculture has spread everywhere. Like everybody is thinking about uh, the Western view on music theory, at least uh, in certain worlds or certain realms. And, um, you know, it's important to be able to preserve different cultures and different styles of music theory. Um, and that was just something I talked a lot about Indian music theory in um, the video, but I, I saw that. It's a kind of musical gentrification. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can definitely say that. There's a monoculture for sure that's that's spreading. This actually takes <laughs> us to our very different topic, and this is actually what I really was excited to talk to you about, and that's music as language. Mm, and I got a lot of, lot of thoughts about that one. <laughs> us too. 
<laughs> uh, yes. So, I mean, actually, you can start. <laughs> okay. Music, music is language. <laughs> music <Go>. is language. <laughs> um, yeah, music is language-like. There's a lot of similarities. And the more that you think about music as a language, as a musician, when you're studying it, the better a relationship you have with it. But it is not a universal language. I don't like when people say that music is the universal language. It brings us all together. I, I say like, yeah, music can bring people together. Uh, but calling it a universal language is uh, problematic. And the reason for that is, is because different people relate to different sounds in different ways. Um, I say that it's language-like because I'm very deeply influenced by a bass player by the name of Victor Wooten. And Victor Wooten is an incredibly virtuosic mm. bass player. He just plays incredible, incredible bass guitar. But I'm most influenced by his uh, perspective on education. And he talks all the time about how he learned to play music. And he learned to play music with his brothers. Uh, they were in a band, a family band, the Wooten family band. And he didn't, uh, the way that he learned, and he always talks about this, is that he learned by uh, jamming with his brothers. His brothers just brought him into the jam session and he just played the bass guitar and didn't really play anything real or like anything good, but he was just jamming with his brothers all the time and learned that way through natural kind of language acquisition. He always kind of ma makes the uh, relationship to uh, natural language acquisition to music language acquisition because he didn't learn any in any kind of formal setting. And when you learn a foreign language in a formal setting, it can be very stilted. Like you learn the list of all the grammar, like all the conjugations, mm -hmm. you learn the vocabulary words, and it's kind of like learning music in a formal setting. It's very stilted, but immersion in a culture and immersion among musicians is a very powerful way of accumulating and acquiring musical language knowledge. And I love that. When I first heard Victor Wooten talk about that, I, I really kind of like changed my perspective on what music is. It's this language of communicating ideas between different people. Um, when was that for you? Uh, this was like well, 15 or 16. I was about 15 or 16 um, when I first saw, I think it was probably like a YouTube video or something. And then I started going to Victor Wooten's clinics. He, he does all these like clinics all over the place. And um, definitely check them out if you haven't already. And, you know, I started thinking more about, um, you know, well, if this is a language, like, could we say, like, uh, a phrase is a sentence or, like, a note is a word or something like that. And uh, the great com conductor Leonard Bernstein has this series called The Unanswered Question on YouTube, which um, he was very deeply influenced by Noam Chomsky's, like, theory of universal grammar. And he attempts to come up with some kind of... Sorry, sorry, sorry. I... <laughs> <laughs> I think I need to put a, a musical tune whenever Chomsky is is, is oh, brought up. Oh, like, has, I, has uh, Chomsky? Oh, yeah. No, no, he's 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 a he's a nemesis of mine linguistically. <laughs> I am of the opposite linguistic school. The oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't I don't agree at all with um, what Leonard Bernstein tried to do. Like, it, it makes no sense. But at the same time, there's some deep poetry in what. Bernstein was trying to accomplish. Um, it makes very little sense. It's not like cohesive at all. It's like a linguistic approach to music, but he was very influenced by Chomsky. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't say anything uh, <laughs> about Chomsky specifically. Um, no, so, no, it's not about him as a person. It's, it's <laughs> the Chomsky theory. Exactly the universalization of everything is, yeah. is a problem. Yeah. So I, I agree with that 100% because um, that, that idea that 
everything can be reduced down to a, a universal theory of music um, is it's a very hot button issue in certain realms. Uh, there was a, an article in Nature magazine um, which attempted to try and find and identify universals in music that are the same across every single culture. Um, but it's a very problematic article um, because it its definition of music is a, coming from a very European perspective, or a very Western perspective, I should say. So again, melody and harmony? Uh, yeah, but it is taking into account other things. It, you know, it's tricky because as a musician, like I, I tell this story sometimes, um, I, was in a, I was doing a State Department tour in Mongolia, and uh, Mongolian, we were playing with these Mongolian musicians, and um, they didn't really speak English, and we didn't really speak Mongolian. Um, but through the power of music, we could come together and play music, you know, play music. And at a very superficial level, people are, people would say like, oh, like that's because music is the universal language. And, you know, in one sense, yes, but in another sense, absolutely not, because we weren't playing Mongolian music. We were playing like American jazz alongside Mongolian musicians. If we were to be playing Mongolian music, we would have to have a very deep understanding of the culture, where the music comes from, and the language in which they play. Um, you know, very deep understanding of that music, and it, that would take many, many years of study. The same way that learning Mongolian would, uh, for, you know, like just because we are playing music together doesn't mean that we are playing the same music. I mean, even in the subdivisions that you can hear with, with the difference between big bands in New York and big bands in New Orleans, there's, there are local subtleties. So obviously, when you're crossing the ocean, you're going to have different cultures and different traditions. Yeah, for sure. Um, and everything is surface level when you say that music is the universal language. But when you get deeper, you realize, oh, no, there is some very deep, very deep, uh, like different relationships to notes. Um, Can you give an example? Okay, yeah. So check this out. Um, there in Mongolian music, there's this rhythm. We would call it the gallop rhythm. It's like everywhere. And the idea is that it's meant to imitate the horses on the step. Like that's the traditional understanding of And American bluegrass also has that. So there's a very similar relationship, um, but they're coming from different cultural perspectives. And, you know, in American bluegrass, you would never play that rhythm like on a wood block or something that just makes no sense it, it has to be on a guitar and the way that you play a guitar is different with the pick and you know the physical relationship to it the chord progressions that you do in american bluegrass and some of the different kinds of articulation on the guitar have nothing to do with mongolian music which um you know there's this instrument called the morin core which is this two-string horsehead fiddle basically and the way that you play it is you kind of apply pressure to the string but the string doesn't actually go all the way into the fingerboard and you know just because you know da 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 and there might be some kind of similar cultural signifier between the two cultures doesn't mean that you can play the more in core if you're an american bluegrass musician that just makes no sense there's like a very deep understanding and like deep language to the more in core that doesn't exist in the music of earl scruggs and and vice versa too it just does not translate there is no translation it's like it's a very surface level you hear that rhythm and you're like aha universal language I mean, that's like a, it's like a false cognate. I feel like if we're going to go down the linguistic hole of two words, which sound the same, but don't really mean the same. I, I'm not sure if that's actually what or, or it is. Or false <laughs> translation across languages, but yeah. 
yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm, you know, I'm not a linguist. <laughs> it's definitely, uh, it's definitely interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about it this way. I mean, I'm thinking about when I learned a second language and I had learned it in school first and mm. then went to um, a country where I was then immersed in it and then had to acquire it. And the only way that I was going to learn was but I had to make the mental decision that I was going to, f- I can curse on my podcast. Yes. I'm a, I was going to fuck up a lot and not be afraid about making mistakes. And that was by far the only way I learned because you can't, you can't translate the, the things that you've studied and memorized into kind of fluency and conversation until you just mess up so many times. And I realized that, um, I, and I, I would imagine many, many other people don't feel like they have that liberty to go mm-hmm. into a room of musicians who know what the fuck they're doing and to try and mess up and kind of become fluent. I feel like that process is incredibly intimidating for for a non-musician. And I mean, it's very obvious to anybody who's bilingual who can, when, when they're growing up, experiencing the world through different languages and they can feel how colors are seen differently when they're read in different languages you can mm. see how the the it's not it's not the same to see to say even door in two different languages you feel something different it has a different text emotional texture so yeah. obviously you, you it's 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 the weight of culture and i if i if i may complain about Chomsky for one more. Oh, yeah. Let's get, yeah, I, I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's, I'm not sure that it's necessarily him or his disciples, but the Chomskyite school, one of the uh, biggest points of contention, or uh, an interesting point of contention between the Chomskyite school and the, the horde of linguists that raised me, there's, an, there's a discussion about nonverbal phrases, for instance. So in English, obviously, there has to be a verb. You have to say, the table is red. You have to say, is. Now, the generative school, Chomsky's school, as they were searching for that universal language, they used English as their template, which led them to the assumption that no matter the language, a sentence must have a verb. So languages like Hebrew, which I can speak to, which don't require a verb, are just absurdly regarded as nonverbal verbal sentences. Basically, that the verb is there. It's just as it's, it's, it's an invisible yeah. verb. It's like, no, there's just, you can say table red. It doesn't mean the table is red. It's a subtlety of thinking and construction that the quest for universal language doesn't allow for. I have something that will blow your guys' mind, or at least it blew mine. Um, okay, I'm going to play two notes on the piano, just make sure that I can... You Ooh, you just this. slid it I into slid, view. I slid <laughs> a piano into view. Aha, <laughs> piano ready at all times. All right, I'm going to play two notes. Just let me know if you can hear this. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So I'm going to play two notes. Okay. I played one note that you would say is higher than the other note, and one note which was lower. This was higher. This is lower. That is a metaphor. There is nothing actually in the sound that is high and low. If you think about what sound and pitch is, it's how fast a note is vibrating versus how slow a note is vibrating. So you could say the first note was uh, faster than the, first, uh, than the second one. The second note was slower, the first note was faster. It's in English and it's, um, it's actually many languages which say one is higher than the other. There's a high-low metaphor, but in some languages, it's a thin, fat metaphor. So in, mm. I think it's Farsi, and a Zapotec, which is um, a like a native Mexican language, 
And what's fascinating about this, and I've talked to some people, uh, some Persian people about this, is there's this thing called synesthesia. And synesthesia is kind of the, um, it's a cross-modal relationship between different sense senses. And I kind of have it, I have what's called grapheme color synesthesia, which means that different letters have different colors. I have like very strong innate color associations with things that aren't really colored. Like A is red. A is 100% red to me. I, there's no reason that it's not logical. It's just, I know that A is red. Uh, C is yellow. I like... A hundred percent yellow. <laughs> I always thought that A minor is red, but I'll... oh, it's very red. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that one. Um, C minor is blue, though. But we'll never uh, time. No, it's kind of like a golden. Anyway, uh, we and that's the thing. It's like you get a bunch of synesthetes in the room, and they will argue and get very upset about it, knowing full well that it makes no sense whatsoever. But they will be very passionate, and I will die saying that C is gold. C minor is golden. I mean, C is exactly the backdrop of your room, by the way. This is exactly C. No, minor. no, no, not at all. This is not C. What are you talking about <laughs> but okay so there's a, there's something that happens in the brain which makes makes these um, cross-modal associations it's not fu fully understood but we do that anyway with language and music we say high and low we know that's high we know that's low even though there is no physical space whatsoever and it has nothing to do with the physics of it one is just vibrating faster it's not higher it's not lower we've just made that association and in farsi and zapotec it's thin fat or like thin wide and so what's interesting, and I've talked to a couple people with synesthesia um, who, like, there's advanced forms of synesthesia where you literally have what's called a photism, which is you see, you kind of have some kind of literal vis visual representation of the sound in your, um, in basically your field of vision. And it's very rare, but it sometimes occurs with uh, people with perfect pitch and synesthesia. Anyway, English speakers who have synesthesia will literally see higher notes higher in their field of vision and lower notes lower in their field of vision. Farsi speakers with synesthesia will literally see a thin note and literally see a wide note. Wow. So there is such a crazy correlation in the brain between language and that metaphor and the physical representation of another sense. And, you know, I'm not a Sapir Whorf guy, but uh, I, I think that in music, there's definitely this relationship between the different ways different languages literally hear, I shouldn't say languages, different speakers of different languages literally hear music because of the metaphors they use to describe music. So we have thin fat for pitch. Um, like, okay, here's, here's another one. Um, this is a major chord. Uh, typically, we are told that this is a happy sound. This is a minor chord. Typically, we're told that this is a sad sound. This is a very strong correlation between emotion and sound that we have in English. Um, can you tell me what the, uh, like, I guess, emotional reaction you have to this sound is? What is the emotional reaction to that? It's a wiggle. I'm wiggling. Wiggle. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so sometimes like this interval in music theory, we call this the augmented second. And traditionally, this was used to affect the sound of Turkish Eastern, music. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So at least in the 19th century Europe, this augmented second really meant like it had a strong correlation between like the Orient. Yeah, that's hardcore Edward Said right there. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, in North Indian classical music, that is uh, part of a, a series of ragas, 
that is meant to express devotion. And there's a very serious sense of devotion that's associated with that sound. Um, it's a different cultural connotation, like entirely from what the Western monoculture says about this. I hear this and I hear like, oh, okay, like we're in the Turkish desert. territory. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's that sound um, because that's, we're so encultured to that. And so there's such a strong relationship between the sound and the words and, you know, the history of the culture that we, it, it's like, it's immediate. It's so immediate. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I found that really, really interesting to be able to learn about that, these sorts of things. And I'm still learning about them, honestly. Mm. Um, but understanding that, that that cultural relationship very deeply affects your relationship to sound. Do you have any thoughts about the possibility of an actual, uh, some universal existing? And I'm asking this because a friend of mine that I talked to right before this interview, who's, who's a musician, but is currently studying cognitive science and linguistics, and he really is seeking out that, that universal. So he's been, um, you know, he's been looking at the Zipian distribution as oh, yeah. a pattern across languages. I'm sure he has no idea how to translate it into music, but. Well, okay, so the big challenge is to define what music is. That I feel like is the big challenge with trying to find any kind of universal and any attempts at finding universals usually are coming from the, like a Western perspective on what music is. Um, and that's, that's hard to even really define because as soon as you try and define music, there's always going to be an exception, like a pretty serious exception. Um, I feel like there, most attempts at defining music usually are uh, organized sound over time, um, which equally applies to language. And then when you try and de like define, you know, other higher orders of exactly what music is, it, it all falls apart very quickly because you're always going to find some exception and some very serious exception to how different cultures define it. So basically any kind, any attempt at finding um, a universal, like there are certain things which are um, somewhat universal, like the use of the perfect fifth um, which is, and the, the reasons why this are, is universal, the use of this particular pitch in relationship to the root, uh, this particular pitch, which I can play on the piano now, hey. Yeah. So if this is the root, most, most cultures, I'm gonna say all, but most cultures around the world also have, in addition to this root note, they'll also have this note, the perfect fifth. What, at least in the West, we'd call the perfect fifth. And the reason for that is because the perfect fifth is very strong in the harmonic series. It's a multiple of the fundamental. So if the fundamental pitch was vibrating at 100 times per second, 100 hertz, this isn't, I'm just saying if, uh, the perfect fifth would be the one that's vibrating at 300 times per second. So it's a simple multiple of 100. Um, so if we go 100, 200, which would be the octave, the fifth would be... 300 which would be uh yeah the third fun third harmonic and then the fourth harmonic 400 would be the octave again and then the fifth harmonic would be the major third and so most cultures not all usually have those three notes the root the fifth and the third because they are very much baked into the like the nature of the sound itself nature of all sounds has this kind of harmonic resonance. You mean as the human ear perceives them? Uh, well, no, this is, this is straight science. I mean, the human, the human ear then picks this up and whether or not we interpret it as musical sounds, that, that who knows. Mm. But this is, these are this is literally- The big. actual vibrations. The yeah. frequencies. Yeah, yeah mm. these, this is literally frequency. This is literally baked in the sound. We can measure it. Mm -hmm. we, it doesn't need, um, yeah. So just multiples of a fundamental frequency. Those multiples then translate into different notes 
and those different notes can be perceived by human ears. Whether or not they're incorporated into any kind of uh, musical vocabulary, who knows? Um, so there are some fundamentals like that. But beyond that, there's very little else that we can say because uh, dissonance itself, like um, this sound, we typically think of this as being a dissonant sound. There's a lot of clashing going on. But in, uh, there's a, a recent study from a, um, like a, a tribe in the Amazon, which what didn't relate to dissonance the same way that we relate to dissonance in the West. Uh, they, uh, through a series of these, um, I feel like there's these tests that they were doing where basically they were asked to harmonize with different melodies of their culture and asked whether or not um, other melodies were dissonant. And things that we would consider consonant, they considered dissonant, and things that we would consider dissonant, they considered consonant. And, you know, there's just a very different relationship to that sound. Like, we think of it as clashing, but maybe other people don't. And it's so context-driven and so culture-driven that I don't think that you can say, you can say what notes are, but you can't say your relationship to the notes. I can say that this is a C and a D flat, and that might be universal, but that might mean different things in different contexts. Cool. So this this is um, actually I'm going to connect it to what we're just talking about. If if it will look at you, let's see if oh, I can oh, segue. segue. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, it. So thinking about the ways that different cultures approach music clearly so differently. I'm um, I want to get. I know that you do a lot of videos on copyright and I know that um, oh, yeah. Adam is like a big nerd into law um, and the intersection of law and music, which often is copyright. Um, but I'm curious if you've come across in your research, like do other cultures think about this completely different? Do they, are they also like as obsessed in trying to copyright music the way that we Ooh. are in the West? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> historically, this is this is a new one. Um, originally, copyright was you know designed to protect individual composers from basically being ripped off. And like at the turn of the nineteenth or turn of the twentieth century, you could basically just uh, it was sheet music sales. Basically, you could just print somebody else's song and sell it and make a lot of money. And then copyright laws for music slowly developed so that wouldn't happen. So this is all a, a modern thing. Um, and in the past. <laughs> five to 10 years, it's gotten to some pretty ridiculous, gone to some pretty ridiculous heights because people are trying to make as much money as they can using copyright law. And this idea of ownership over basic fundamental aspects of music, you know, I, I, I like the fact that copyright law and intellectual property law was designed to protect people from being screwed over, but it's gotten to the point now where it's being used as a weapon, a cudgel to make people as much money as possible. Um, rather than people, it's not the little guy necessarily. Oh God, it's never, it's never the little guy. It, it very rarely is the little guy. So to um, anyone who's not, who's not necessarily as obsessed with copyright law and copyright trolls as I am, can you give <laughs> an example? Well, the most recent, um, uh, yeah, the most recent one that I've talked about a lot was the Katy Perry lawsuit. This is like kind of a, an infamous one. Um, um, there was this Christian rapper by the name of Flame uh, who wrote this song that had nothing to do with Katy Perry's song, Dark Horse. It, like a different melody, different chord progression, different lyrics, different everything, basically. Different key. Like it had nothing to do, but there was one element in Flame's song that kind of sounded similar. And that was what we call an ostinato, which is this background melody. It's um, essentially, <laughs> yeah, I, I can play it. So the background melody to, Chris, uh, to Flame's song. 
Okay. And then the, uh, the melody to the Katy Perry song. So they're very similar. They're just all quarter notes, staccato, and they're in a minor key, descending down from the minor third. And is uh, that, were that in that t- scenario that you just did, it, that's in the same key or like in the actual yeah. songs are in different keys? Yeah. So I, I intentionally made them sound as close to possible, as close to the same thing as possible. Uh, the actual examples are in different keys. They're played by different instruments. Um, they do serve a similar function in terms of the harmonic texture, but the actual songs themselves are very different and there's a huge lawsuit and flame and uh, flame one basically saying right, and let's the, emphasize that this is not the sing the singing melody this is not a lead oh, melody no this no this is yeah the chord total... progression the melody this is this is a background thing this is like a mm. little thing that you just kind of hear like tucked in the background and the uh the thing that was so infuriating i made a video about this so infuriating was you can find examples of similar sounding melodies all throughout history and like uh, the Bach uh, violin sonata um, like uh, Largo movement uh, has a melody which sounds like this which you know is similar like in terms of how it relates to everything and I changed it from F minor to A minor so it's sounding similar to uh, flame flame song intentionally because that's the kind of thing that like will get people on your side but jurors will hear these melodies and think oh yeah they're the same thing uh clearly uh katy perry stole that from flame and that's wrong and from the perspective of a musician and somebody who borrows material similar material and molds material this is how music happens um like plagiarism is a serious thing and it would suck if you know katy perry intentionally ripped off the smaller rapper um with the intent of taking uh, Flame's idea and then making it her own, but it clearly wasn't, and it clearly was such a like a, a building block. This is like a building block. This is a very fundamental aspect of music: chord note, staccato, ostinato. That's that didn't originate with Flame, and the way that copyright works is that it's saying that that musical idea of a quarter note descending ostinato in a minor key originated with Christian rapper Flame. <laughs> hmm. That was that was the genesis of this brilliant in idea. The beginning, all of all of music. There was flame. <laughs> it, it kind of exactly, and that's what copyright does. Is it says that this or this musical idea, the shared musical language uh, of this particular style of music, uh, this particular uh, tradition of music, originates with one person who owns this intellectual property, and that is that's dark. That that <laughs> unfor- unfortunately. Um, yeah, unfortunately, that's been what um, copyright has done. Uh, fortunately, I, they they overturned that, thank God, because a, a judge saw it and was like, this is stupid. Um, but that has been the trend in recent years. And that is stifling and chilling for musicians, right? I know a few musicians who are working in LA right now, and they're signed by major labels. But they know that part of their contract is just it's just taking into account the fact that they will be sued because yeah. this is what other big companies are, the big labels are doing. So they're part of the consideration for a label to even sign up an artist is we need to account for all the legal expenses for when we will be sued for whatever frivolous reason. It's part yeah. of the economy. It's just baked into the, the music business now. Yeah, yeah. Um which is just it's it's a chilling effect because um 
just 10 years ago, um, when I was first starting out making music, the idea was like, okay, well, the melodies can't be the same, but you, you, you can't, you can't copyright chord progression. So you can like use different, you can use somebody else's chord progression, but just write a different melody on top of it. In fact, there's a long tradition of that. Um, in the 1940s, um, there was this tradition of writing what are called contrafacts. And a contrafact in jazz, um, in jazz music specifically, these are jazz musicians like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. They would just take famous show tunes of the era and write their own melodies on top of it because they were using these show tunes to improvise on top of, but they didn't want to, like, they didn't want to pay the like licensing fees or anything. So they just wrote a different melody, but still came like the still the form and the chord progressions were the same. And that's how they got around it. It was fine. And everybody was happy with it. And um, that has kind of changed because you can't really write a contrafact anymore because nobody really knows what the guidelines are because they're constantly shifting. And if Katy Perry can lose a lawsuit to Flame for taking a very simple background melody, not even a chord progression, something that has nothing to do with anything, uh, what are the rules? Nobody knows what to do because, yeah, you will, you will get sued if you're big enough, which is a, a horrifying thought. Um, fortunately, it's changed a little bit in the past year because of this judge overturning the ruling, but it's still, you know, it's still being used as a cudgel. It's also interesting to think about where we go with this with tech, too, because I feel like with with people making music using, you know, software or AI or whatever, the, the question of how, how much originality is really possible or like to what extent are we even trying to strive for originality especially when you're just like you're there's people are copying each other all the time and it's almost easier to do it now yeah i mean i'll say this uh was the sentence that you said just now a wholly original (laughs) sentence (laughs) i don't know probably maybe not Um, it's the same thing with music is the music that I'm making a wholly original piece of music, Eh. but it was me who said it. And it was the context in which I made it that that gives it its meaning. And there's a, there's a whole aspect to linguistics. That's that looks into the probabilistic Mm. side of language. Like one, one, the moment you say one word, you're already significantly more likely to say another to follow it by another and then another and the more closer you are to the end of the sentence your options narrow because mm-hmm. that's what conversational conventions are and the same like, with music like there's a note you're already creating an anticipation to something else right right so if i played you probably want to expect this note that this note right here is what we would call the leading tone right so it wants to, at least according to the tendencies of Western music, it wants to resolve up mm-hmm. to that C. Like, very, it would be very strange if, like, <laughs> like it has a very different thing. And, you know, it doesn't make any sense that it's a non sequitur. It'd be like, I'm going today to eat yarn. <laughs> like it, it's like not not very possible it's not a thing that makes sense yeah you could do that but you don't want to say that sentence out of fear of being sued for saying today i'm going to eat a salad that's Call kind of like green ideas sleep yeah. seriously <laughs> um so so but this is obviously we're we're having the intellectual discussion about how absurd it is the reason that this is happening is because you have an industry that is essentially losing its revenue stream right this is and they're they're just becoming intellectual property vultures 
as a compensation for an increasingly defunct distribution model. So this is very little to do with the depth we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there is any real person in the in the legal team for Mr. Flame <laughs> who was genuinely worried about protecting an artist from oh, plagiarism. It, no. Well, actually, in that that specific case is interesting because um, Flame's uh, Flame had some like uh, beef with. Um, Katy Perry's occult imagery in her music video because mm. he's a Christian rapper and really didn't mm. like the like uh, pagan imagery in the music video. So there's actually a very specific cultural uh, aspect to that particular lawsuit. But in other lawsuits, um, yeah, there, it's it really comes down to like money making. Um, what's interesting is you said that this is an industry that's losing revenue. Uh, it actually isn't like, and if you look at the big money makers and like the major labels, Warner Music Group, or like Warner, uh, Sony, um, Universal Music Group, uh, they're they're doing all right, and the way that they're doing it is through you know licensing, like they're they're making out with like deals with Spotify. But one interesting thing that um, I personally have been kind of I don't want to say the victim of, but I personally have been dealing with a lot. The target of, yeah, target. Yes, let's say that. Um, is digital rights management on YouTube mm, and social right. media platforms. So whenever I release a video, um, I will sometimes like include a little five-second ex- excerpt, which I believe is fair use, and it's right. this whole thing. Um, and there's you know the copyright; it's not super defined on what exactly fair use is. Fair use of another copyrighted material for the purpose of commentary, and you know, my, I couldn't talk about something if you can't hear it, basically. Um, and so there's this um, ruling, at least in U.S. copyright law, where if you need to make some kind of commentary on a particular piece of copyrighted work, you can use a specific, very small sliver of it. it it's, you know, it's not very clearly defined, but I believe what I do is fair use. And of course, Universal Music Group and other um, companies who own the rights to various songs don't believe that. And so every time I release a YouTube video, somebody goes in, they've hired a team of people to go in and find exactly where I play a melody or do anything. This isn't even like content ID uh, identifying it through the algorithm. They literally have a team of people there who are going around to videos, highlighting what they believe is copyrighted material, and then uh, flagging my videos and then getting demonetized, which is really infuriating because what that means is that I've created this uh, piece of uh, commentary. I've worked on this. And then they've unilaterally decided that the revenue was theirs, mm. and that is a very profitable, uh, like a very profitable business model for them uh, to do digital rights management on YouTube and other platforms because essentially they're taking uh, revenue from all this place and funneling it directly into uh, their like into their coffers. And what they've kind of turned themselves into are a bunch of uh, copyright trolls, I feel like. Um, The music industry is a copyright troll industry. It's not a recording industry anymore. It's specifically designed to extract as much money um, as possible from the internet and social media. And that's how they're staying afloat. Um, It's not record sales anymore, that's for sure. And it's definitely not touring or anything like that. the, the great irony of all of this, and I love tell, telling a story, I made it on like a follow-up YouTube video. So I made this uh, video which went viral talking about Dark Horse and Flame. And I was like, this is, this is terrible. Flame shouldn't have been able to do this. And um, Katy Perry is represented by Universal Music Group. And they claimed that video. In other words, they were like, oh, no, uh, you, that, that money that you're making from this video, oh, that's ours now which is 
like a really dick move to do mm -hmm. because hey i'm defending you that's like wow that is a, a <laughs> bad thing why are you doing that but the best irony of this and this is fantastic is they had somebody go into my video and try and find which one was dark horse like i was playing examples of all these different styles of music um i played flames i like i, I didn't play the audio I, pl I did a recreation of it on my piano i played flames uh song joyful noise i played dark horse and when you go in and you try and select which song is copyright and you know was infringing the copyright the person that went in didn't select dark horse they selected flames joyful noise <laughs> so they were claiming the video for another song because they couldn't tell the difference between the two songs in my video talking about copyright and the relationship between you the should two have songs. you should have just went double dick and submitted it as an amicus brief against i, would, I was thinking i was man i was thinking about it. i was so pissed about this because they they truly don't care they truly don't care because they realize that even if they lose that lawsuit they're still going to end up making a lot more money uh, extracting money from it, like TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and anything that can be monetized, they're going to try and get all that ad, ad revenue. So, right. Yeah. And even if the precedent still stood, it wouldn't be Katy Perry who'd suffer from it. Oh, no. The, the, the like Katy Perry doesn't like. She's fine. Right. That, 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 that's the thing is like my beef is never with major pop stars or, you know, they, they're living a very different world. Like Katy Perry is fine no matter what. This is not Katy Perry. Um, although I did have, oh, I did have an interesting, uh, uh, talking about copyright, I had a very interesting experience with Beyonce. Wow. Um, not specifically with Beyonce, but with her team. So um, <laughs> uh, I made a video analyzing single ladies, uh, mm -hmm. just going over like a song. I think it's kind of a cool song. It's kind of interesting. Um, melodic and harmonic content so i went through and i did this like sh like bad sorry uh, i did this bad midi interpretation of single ladies and then uh that was claimed and then i like fought the claim and it was this whole thing and then they issued a dmca takedown for the video because um they were like like no we can't have this video on the internet and so dmca is do not do not monetize content or something so like oh yeah so a dmca is the digital millennium copyright act and it gives oh. um it gives um, rights holders the ability to basically take down content um, if they feel like is infringing upon their copyright. This and, is the strongest tool for abuse. Yeah, so they can basically issue a DMCA takedown and basically say to YouTube, take this stuff off of the internet. Then I have the ability to issue a counter notification, which is like, nah, this goes on the internet. And then they basically have 10 days to sue me once I issue that. Um, so this, these are legal documents which are flying around. And uh, so I was like, um, no, I'm, this, this goes on the internet. Like this, I, I feel like, you know, you could, if you want to sue me, sue me. But I feel like I have a pretty strong case that this is fair use. And YouTube did one of, normally YouTube stays out of it because they have something called Safe Harbor. And Safe Harbor is very important for um, tech companies because they don't want to have any kind of legal um, basis on this. They don't want to be judging whether or not they're, stuff that's uploaded to their platform is infringing upon copyright because then they're on the hook of whether or not uh, they can be sued. And so they have this thing called safe harbor, which means that they are never making any calls on what gets demonetized or uh, taken down. It's all in the rights holders hands. So I was issued a DMCA takedown for my little dumb video about single ladies. Um, then 
I issued a counter notification, but YouTube did something very, very strange and they blocked my counter notification. And this caused a huge uproar because you're not supposed to be able to block counter notifications. You're blocking a legal document from being filed. And I, so I like tweeted about this legal YouTube was like, oh, wow, this is really bad. Uh, you should sue YouTube. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure if I want to do that. <laughs> but apparently what has happened, and this is very interesting, with the, universe, like, with the three major companies that have, um, like Universal Music Group, Sony, and Warner, they have a specific um, arrangement with YouTube to block counter for no notifications. And this is something that is unique to the music industry. Basically, uh, YouTube might... YouTube will take the legal damage if they're ever sued. So it's, it's a very strange relationship that YouTube has specifically with music creators and music um, copyright holders, I should say. And so it, it took a bunch of wrangling for me to be able to file this counter notification. And eventually it went through and eventually Beyonce didn't sue me. But the reason why this is interesting is because Beyonce was releasing Lemonade at the time. And essentially oh. what she, she said to her team was like, take all of the copyrighted content of my music down. She basically, that was the thing. And um, the team went very zealous with that and they were going after everybody and anything. And they're, uh, my guessing is that um, it was going to be an epic battle of Beyonce versus Adam Neely versus hmm. YouTube. And eventually that was like resolved, but it was one of the strangest times in my life because I, uh, I was touring overseas at that time when all this stuff is going down. I'm looking at my phone. I'm like, is Beyonce going to sue me? Uh, this is, why am I on YouTube? <laughs> this is ridiculous. I just made a dumb video talking about single ladies and now it's turned into this whole thing. Anyway. So it there the copyright situation on YouTube is is a uh, complicated a mess compli a miss yeah sorry if I went too too deep no no no, no I'm, <laughs> I, I geek like out <laughs> this is uh, yeah these are, this is the stories that I want to hear every day before going to bed uh, <laughs> oh, God, copyright is, war stories oh there's some more but I'm, I, I can't I can't get get on them on the podcast that's one that I'm gonna well uh, tell. <laughs> hopefully one day it'll come back again by Long Island City and I could get you drunk and hear all the oh yeah there's some more there's some more that's um, but and the reason why I can't tell them is they're not specifically to me. Right, uh, right. Other music, I'll say this, other music uh, theory and music uh, education channels deal with some pretty insane stuff. Rick Beato testified in Congress hmm. about all of this stuff um, because Don Henley of the Eagles is a notorious like copyright troll, essentially. He made hmm. the transition from being a, a musician to a copyright troll, and a lot of people are like that. Um, and so every musician on YouTube has a story about the Eagles and how the Eagles oh, went geez. after them. Yeah, that's that's a whole thing. <laughs> it's, a, um, it's a rite of passage. It's a rite of passage. If Don Henley goes after you, you are you've made it <laughs> on YouTube. <laughs> I want to I want to give a steel man to the protection to the idea of copyright, but I don't feel I have to. They they make enough money. So <laughs> be, uh, before letting you go, I, if you have the the few last minutes to to join us in the variety experiment that we wanted to to try, I wanted to ask you to try and jazzify our opening tune. Oh, God. And okay. as you do, I'd like you to try to explain what it is you go through. What's your thinking process? Uh, okay, cool. How do you turn a mere melody into jazz? Okay, yeah. So, like, it sounds like it's a... So, it's going back and forth between C and... Yeah, what exact... Sorry. You're, you're watching me, like, transcribe it live on air. So, this might... <laughs> give me one moment... Take your time. 
but it's already pretty like pretty i don't want to say jazzy but it's pretty uh, there's a lot of harmonic mo movement that so it's like the a minor going to the g f it's like uh, g e over g sharp and then we had like a minor going to like g and then the d over f sharp that's what you're talking about right yep. yeah, yeah okay cool yeah so i honestly i would probably wouldn't change that much about the harmony when you talk about jazz you a lot of times when people talk about it, they're thinking they're referencing the harmony um and that's something when going back to the like the culture aspect of this when you know people like make it jazzy a lot of the times they're just talking about making it like adding a bunch of harmonic extensions so if we had like the first chord was an a minor right uh the first chord could be like an a minor with the nine in it a minor with the g in it uh you could be like adding all these extra notes to it but it still at its core it's a minor and uh honestly i probably wouldn't change a whole lot about it i might like change like um i might change like Yeah, like getting, getting some darker colors in there. Whenever I'm thinking about harmony, I'm not a pianist, by the way. So, it, uh, so right. a lot of this stuff doesn't necessarily translate to like my vocabulary. But to me, what jazz actually is, is the process of improvisation. It's the process of creating in the real time. Um, and it's when people associate jazz, they think about the weird like chords and things like that. That isn't really what it is to me. Um, the if i was going to like improvise on my bass maybe uh i could like say hey this is jazz it's the freedom of the improvisation it's the reinterpretation yeah i mean to me okay actually this is probably what my my definition of jazz is um it's a style of musician and when i say that um musicians will kind of probably know what i'm talking about but to try and like put into context it's a person who has the ability to improvise around basically anything um whether or not it's good or whether or not it's pre-planned it's the ability to just uh, apply a jazz blues vocabulary to, in any kind of context just f going for it um and you know you can have a jazz musician who plays different styles of music that have nothing to do with jazz but it's a style and approach to music making so if i was to like play bass on top of this you know i would consider this being a jazz musician because I'm improvising. I have no idea because you're doing really your jazz on. thing on doing, top. Yeah, of. exactly. So just uh, like I apologize for this ahead of time, but here I go. Thank you. Thank you for playing uh, this along. Is great. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, that, that feels much more like jazz music because I'm just <laughs> noodling around and anybody who has that perspective of like, all right, well, I'm applying different chords and chord sounds that I know from the tradition of jazz to a style of music that isn't jazz. So how do you explain the almost innate resistance that some people have when you offer to go to a jazz club and they're oh, no mm, mm, pass on the jazz thank you um well people need an in and a lot of times when you i have saying that earlier people always need some kind of context mm. and you're going jazz full can, circle yeah uh, it's an instrumental music that for a lot of people doesn't 
have the same kind of emotional weight as lyrical music does um, because it's harder to relate to if you don't have any you know you don't know what people are doing it just all sounds like noise but one of the things that i think is very important when you're going to a jazz show is to know that jazz musicians are improvising off of a melody we call it the head melody and the head melody is the song so you know very often um, we have these things called jazz standards and jazz musicians will improvise to old show tunes which is a strange thing but it's part of the canon and you know like my favorite things that's a, an important uh, you mentioned John Coltrane earlier. So when you listen to a jazz band playing My Favorite Things, you might not hear the melody at all. You might not hear Julie Andrews singing. It was Julie Andrews, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah Julie Andrews. You might not see that and like, how is this My Favorite Things? But if you're always keeping in the back of your mind, like the melody, and if you, if you sing the melody along with yourself uh, to the jazz that's happening, um, you, you'll start to be able to hear that connection because there's always this underlying current of the chord progression and the melody that musicians are improvising off of and recreating and distorting and um, vibing on. And so that's usually the end is making sure that you listen to the melody alongside these uh, musicians. On, <laughs> Except on the that there is, there is a point where for a lot of really great jazz musicians, I remember Al Demiola's reinterpretation of, I think it was Greensleeves, and it taking the piece that you you know very well but constantly pushing it further into abstraction yeah um, and I can it, see it, how uh, how this is partly of what creates people like I, I really try to hear it but I can't yeah and there's different levels like um, you know uh, was it the Mondrian like uh, the different art like he hmm. is turning it into this like uh, right distilling an image into its most abstract form and you can't really see the tree anymore it's just like oh that's a white square and a blue <laughs> square and a red square i don't see mm -hmm. the tree um but having that context of knowing that that's what he was doing does help you like mm. kind of get it mm -hmm. um it's always you always need an in you always need some kind of thing that in the back of your head says like oh that's what's what's happening so with coltrane late coltrane like he'll spend literally an hour improvising off of my favorite things and it's in the stratosphere and he's definitely reaching for something um you can like kind of hear and feel the sweat at least in a lot of jazz, it's a, an embodied feeling, like a rhythm um, that definitely is the driving factor alongside the melody. And, you know, um, it takes, like, like anything worth doing, it takes time to be able to really get into it. And also, not everybody grew up, like, listening to jazz. It's another language. It's, there's tropes, for sure. Um, the trope that, of course, I'm very heavily associated with on my channel is this thing called the lick. I was Which embarrassed is, asking you to. Yeah, I was going to do it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> give, give the people what they want. Yeah. Um, and so that's just like this little melodic fragment that has been used by many jazz musicians. And in the internet era, it's been turned into a meme that basically is like a signifier that you know what jazz is. Or it's like, it's an in-group thing. It's saying like, if you hear the lick, uh, you know what's up. You're, <laughs> that's the lick. Um and, you know, it's, it's a vocabulary and it takes a while to like really get into. But I think that melody and rhythm are definitely the things that you can use to bring people in. Last question. What are you listening to right now? Uh, Tennyson. I uh, just got into Tennyson. T-E-N-N-Y-S-O-N. -N um, I think they're great. It's like this electronic pop sort of uh, duo. Um, I should have been getting into them earlier. Uh, what else am I listening to? Uh, I don't... Yeah, that's probably... Probably it. Um, 
I just re-listened to Jacqueline Dupre doing the Elgar Cello Concerto, which is one of my favorites. Uh, Do you have time to listen recreationally for inspiration for uh, soul purposes? <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, honestly, like because, and this is something that a lot of musicians will, will talk about, um, recreational music making a recreation, not music making, recreational music listening is very low on the priority list. Recreational music making, that's high. Recreational, or like professional music making and professional music listening, that's also very high. But recreational, like you spend your whole day doing this, doing the thing that you love. At a certain point, you need to turn off. So, you know, like when I run or when I like go and do like menial activities, I, uh, I don't listen to music. Uh, why would I do that? That's what I'm doing all the other time. This isn't my escape. And it's a different relationship to music that um, non-professionals have. I, you know, it's like, um, I, I don't know if there's a good way, good analogy, but um, there, there's no reason for me to do recreational music listening. Um, it, it sounds like it's kind of like a, a depressing thought, but honestly, it's fine for me because recreational music listening um, is something that clouds my ears a lot of the time recreational hmm. music performing and playing all the time i would love to do that nothing Expli more explain explain that a little bit cloud yeah. your yeah well because um I, it's a lot of times people's relationship to music is to turn off or like to escape or to go into a different world and vibrate at a different level if we're going to be like hippy dippy about it um i'm doing that professionally all the time i'm at i'm in the music realm i'm thinking about the music things i'm listening to music to analyze it and then i'm listening to music to feel it to as like if i'm learning it or if i'm like trying to engage with it as my job like this is what i do I'm, i'm thinking about it and i'm engaging with it and it's fun and it's exciting but that's my professional mode of operation because this is what i do and it's super cool But I've learned that you can't do that. Like if, if it's time to be like, all right, I'm done for the day. Now need to relax. I can't keep doing that because mm. that's what I'm doing during the day. Um, I used to play a lot of weddings, uh, which is a, a fun, fun thing for musicians. Uh, party, it's a big party. And, you know, if you have a good quality musicians in New York, there's some amazing musicians who play in some of these corporate bands. And, you know, I... I <sighs> Earth, Wind, and Fire is amazing. I love Earth, Wind, and Fire, but I'm never going to listen to them recreationally. It's just, it's, it, their, their music has been, it's been changed for me. It's been transformed in this way. And it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but that's just like kind of the reality for a lot of musicians is like the, your relationship to music changes and navigating that and, and keeping it healthy is an ongoing struggle. Um, but I think, I think, by not listening to music recreationally that much, you can still keep that spark and that desire and that drive when you're in work mode, um, mm. because that's very much alive for me. And that will continue to be very much alive for me for uh, hopefully the rest of my life. Well, thank you so much um, for <laughs> the time. This was great. Such uh, a breath of fresh air. Yeah. I hope I can give you a little, a little respite. <laughs> so, so what do you think about the Georgia recount? Uh, I have so many thoughts. I actually don't. Uh, yeah, that Georgia recount. Like, uh, I can talk about like Georgia trap, like Atlanta trap. Yeah, let's talk about trap music. Georgia. Georgia. Adam, thank you so much. This was, yeah. this was a pleasure. Uh, amazing. Thank you guys so much for having me here. This was, this was a lot of fun for me. 
Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Please follow us on uncertain.substack.com and uncertainpod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please give us a five-star rating. Be kind. Share with your friends. And until next time, when things get more political, do stay sane.